Father, that you are a way-making God for us, and though we cannot see very far ahead, that you know the end from the beginning. Help us to trust you more, Lord, to walk in your truth, to rest in your care, to count upon your great, mighty, right, upholding hand to keep us. Thank you, Father, for the blessing of the weekend as the men have gathered for our retreat and Bible conference time. Thank you for your servant, Brother Ken. I pray, Lord, that you'd give him great liberty as he speaks. May the Spirit of God use your word, as you do so often, to challenge us, to convict us, to point the way for us, to comfort us, to give us courage to live the way you've called us to live. Thank you for these times, Lord, on Sunday morning, the beginning of our week, where we open our Bibles on our laps. We close our lips and we open our ears and we seek to hear from you and to apply your truths to our lives for another week. And we give ourselves to you. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, church. I am so grateful to be able to share this time with you, and I mean that sincerely. I have truly enjoyed the uh, Fellowship Bible Church Marathon. Uh, so, uh, and uh, boy, it has been a, it has been a wonderful uh, experience for me to be uh, a men's retreat uh, speaker. And then to have the grand opportunity to be able to labor in this vineyard uh, that the Lord might even just give me a little bit of fruit among you. I am I'm grateful for that opportunity. I bring to you greetings from the, uh, the southern part of our fair state. And uh, I am grateful to be able to visit uh, this part of, of West Virginia. Um, as a matter of fact, my wife and I live not too far from here uh, over in Virginia whenever we were first married. Uh, we were in Strasburg, Virginia. And uh, so this isn't totally new to me, but... Uh, I, it's, uh, this side of West Virginia is, is uh, a new experience for me, and so I'm grateful to be here, and I'm thankful. Um, <clears throat> this morning, if you would take your Bibles and be so kind to turn with me to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, hopefully we can continue on with a theme that we began with the men, and hopefully this, this morning this can be kind of a, a crescendo and a wrap-up. Uh, 
I believe that the end of the race is much more important than the beginning of the race. And uh, so this is the end of the race for us, and, and, and it is our intent to finish strong and to be able to uh, draw some of these principles and things to a conclusion that we shared with the men over the, over the course of this weekend. Um, <clears throat> I believe that God has designed life to be lived much like a relay race. Uh, we begin our life and, and we start running our lap. But when our lap is finished, that's not necessarily the end of the race. Uh, we carry with us a baton. And when we near the end of our race, uh, we prepare to pass that baton off to the next generation in order that they might continue to run their race. Now, when this is done properly, the, the runner who is finishing his lap, he, he hits this transfer zone. He hits this, this place in the track where the other runner is waiting to pick up. And if this is done properly, the runner who is finishing his lap hits that, that part of the track in full stride. At the same time that he is finishing his race, the other runner is starting so that by the time the first runner gets to him, he is in full stride. And so the runner who is passing the baton is in full stride and the one who is receiving the baton is also in full stride so that there is a seamless pass. Now, this is the way life is designed for us. Unlike a sprint or an individual race, uh, that the only thing that really counts is if you get your body across the finish line before the other runners. In a relay race, it's not just your body, just not yourself that you're carrying. You're carrying a baton. And the way you run your race impacts the outcome. Uh, there is no way for us to be able to negate the fact that the way we live our lives, the way that we run our lap, is impacting and affecting the generations that are coming after us. And so I believe that if this scenario is true, and, and I think that if we look in, in, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, that we will find some principles and the practice of, of passing the baton, which happens to be the most crucial part of the race. Now, as you are running in a relay race with your baton, if you happen to drop that baton, you either have to stop and pick it up or you have to go back and get it because it's the baton that's got to cross the finish line. And so passing this off is, is crucial. It's an important part of the race. As a matter of fact, it is so important that relay teams practice this on a repeated basis. And it would do us well to learn some of the principles to help us be able to practice handing off the baton. And so take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6 if you're not already there. And let's read together beginning at verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. That you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all of his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. 
O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and shall be as frontlets on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and your gates. This morning, as we consider this principle of passing the baton, I want us to consider three things from this passage. First of all, in the very first verses there, we see the precept introduced. Uh, the concept of one generation following the next generation and being impacted by those who come before them. Uh, you will notice that, that he says, uh, you are to, to uh, obey these commandments, you are to keep these commandments in order that it may be well with you, your sons, and your grandsons. So we see that the, the, the precept introduced. Finally, the principles involved, and then last of all, the practice initiated. Uh, consider with me for just a moment this, pre this precept that is introduced. Uh, notice that the parents who received this commandment are encouraged to parent with the future in mind. So many times we get focused in on our little time-space continuum and we forget the future that is coming. Uh, there's no way that, that we can effectively live our lives in this way and expect the future generation to be able to take the baton and run seamlessly and run in full stride. Uh, the way we live is going to impact the future. Consider this. Even if you are a grandparent, your job is not finished yet. Your grandchildren can be impacted and affected by the way that you live. And certainly if your parents... This precept is true. So I would encourage you, parent with the future in the mind. Keep in mind your sons and your grandsons. One of the things that my wife and I have done consistently uh, throughout the years of our children's lives, uh, we, have, we have two children, both of them are adults, and both of them are faithfully serving the Lord. And I believe that one of the reasons is because we parented with the future in mind. And one of the ways that we did that, two years ago, I stood in the center aisle of the church that I pastor. And I looked up on the platform at my then 24-year-old son. And I saw the beautiful bride that he was standing beside of. And in my address to her, I said to her, Bonnie Regeer, you are the little twerp that I have been praying for all these years, and I didn't know it. We began praying for our children's spouses from the time that they came into this world. Now, 
I'm still praying for a son-in-law. <laughs> so if you are 28 or thereabouts, <laughs> you might want to talk to me. <laughs> Only if you're a godly young man, though. You won't make it past dad <laughs> if you're not. And she would die a thousand deaths if she knew I was up here in West Virginia advocating for a husband. <laughs> but she's getting old. <laughs> so. And I tell her that all the time. <laughs> Here's what she says to me. She says, keep praying, dad. He's out there. <laughs> He's just got to find me. <laughs> Here's the reason why that we need to parent with the future in mind. That is simply this, that the family is the first line of defense against ungodliness. The family came into existence a long time before the church ever came into existence. And there are far too many families, there are far too many Christian families who are... They are abandoning this responsibility of parenting their children uh, for, uh, and preparing their children to live godly lives in the future. They are abandoning that, that responsibility to the church. And, and somehow or the other, we have gotten into our heads, we've gotten into our minds that if I cart my ch children to church, I get them involved in the children's programs, I get them involved in the youth program, that somehow or the other, I can knock it in neutral and the church can do the job for me. This commandment was not given to the church. It was given to moms and dads. It was given to parents. And you need to be parenting with that in mind. You don't need to be... Uh, uh, abandoning that responsibility to the church. The church is here to supplement what God has commanded you to do. We are to support, we are to help, we are to train you in order that you might be able to do the job that God has called you to do. You cannot abandon your post and leave that up to the church. We are ill-equipped to do that. We're not equipped to be parents. We are equipped to help you grow in your faith in order that you might be the good and the godly parents that God has called you to in order that you might be able to pass the baton to this next generation. As our families go, so goes every other institution that God has ordained. If we do not have strong, godly families that are committed to the principles of God's word that are committed to godly living, then it is very difficult at best to have strong churches. And certainly we know that if our families crumble, then so does our nation. And if you don't think that I'm telling you the truth, all you have to do is to visit many, if not all, of the major cities within our nation. And what you will find in these inner cities is a condition of chaos. And the biggest reason that we find a condition of chaos, high crime rate, high welfare rolls, and all of those things, is because of there is a disintegration of the nuclear family. There is a disintegration of family values, of morality, because we have... Moms and dads who are struggling to raise their children by themselves. Now, let me just be quick to say this. That if 
you have been through divorce, my heart goes out to you. As a matter of fact, we have an outreach at our church to divorce people because it is such a painful thing to go through. And as painful as it is for the husband and the wife in this issue, in all actuality, folks, the ones who suffer the most are the children. And so, you know, some people say, well, <laughs> should I just stay together for the children? Yes. Yes. It's your responsibility. It's what God has called you to. Uh, the family is the first line of defense against ungodliness. Parent in that way. Uh, so it's not going to be the church that's going to be handing off the baton to your children. It's going to be you. Uh, the church is going to be handing off the baton to another generation of Christians to continue this ministry. That's our job. That's our responsibility. That's what we've got to do. So parent with future generations in mind because your sons and your grandsons are going to be impacted and affected by the way in which you serve the Lord, by the way in which you live, and by the things that you believe. That's the reason that God gave the nation of Israel this command. Generations were at stake. Now, I want to skip over the principles for right now, and I want to move to the practice of handing off the baton. Because, unfortunately, that's what a lot of Christian families think they can do. They understand the precept of parenting, and so we think that we can just jump right into the practice and start doing this without first appreciating the principles. And so let's look at the practice. This is, this is what we try to do oftentimes without understanding the principles. Look at them, if you would, in verses 7 through 9 and just refresh yourself with these, uh, with these truths. We are to teach these truths to our children in a variety of arenas and at a variety of times and in a number of different ways. First of all, notice what he says. Inside your home, live in a godly manner. When you're inside, live in a godly way. Now, unfortunately, the home is a place where if we're not careful we can begin to feel as though that it's okay to let down our guard. And it's okay to behave in an ungodly way. Because it's safe. Nobody wants to let the world know that we have a dysfunctional family. And so we have a tendency to kind of protect that kind of thing. By the way, folks, let me just tell you this. Because you are of Adam's seed and because you are of Adam's race, you have a dysfunctional family. And you are the product of a dysfunctional family. And the reason being is because there's no perfect parents and there's no perfect children. And so if we look at God's standard, we're all dysfunctional. Welcome to the world. But just because that is a truth, that doesn't mean that we can somehow or the other, in the safe confines of our home, let down our guard and begin to live in an ungodly way. As a matter of fact, this is so important. That whenever the Apostle Paul, of course, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, gave the qualifications for leadership in the local church, one of the first things that he mentioned is that a man must be able to rule his own household well. 
and that he must be able to hold his children with all gravity. That means that he must have enough weight, he must have enough gravitas within his family unit that his children follow him with a measure of respect. And so the home is no place to let down our guard and, if I can just speak in the vulgar for just a moment, be jerks. There's no place for you to, to do that. As a matter of fact, this is the place where you ought to be on your guard most often. Because this is where hearts are formed. This is where minds are made up. It's in the home. And then on the outside, live in a godly way. Now, don't be surprised whenever you're outside the home, you're out there with your children, if God doesn't set up some kind of scenario for you to be able to demonstrate and to manifest your commitment and your faith in God. Let me just give you one that may happen. I don't know that maybe this has happened, maybe it hasn't happened. But just suppose that you go to McDonald's, you have lunch, and you hand the lady a $20 bill, and she thinks it's a 50 and she gives you the change back. And your little ones are standing there, and they're watching as she counts it out. You know, they've got general math. They know you've got too much change. What do you do? Thank you, Lord. We needed that extra 30. God, you're just blessing me, right? No. No. What are you communicating to your child if you do that? That it's okay to lie, cheat, and steal. And chalk it up to God's blessings. Don't be surprised. And you know, that's just a simple little scenario. But what I'm saying is this. Don't be surprised if whenever you're out there in the way, when you're out there in the world, if God doesn't just create some kind of a teaching scenario for you. So be on the alert, parent with the future in mind, and understand that you've got to respond in a godly way. It's not just the location. It's also the time. Begin the day. And end the day by teaching these principles and reinforcing these principles. As a parent, can you ever take a vacation away from parenting? Someone said to me the other day, and this is, this is a man who's, whose children are already out of the house. He said, as a dad, you don't ever give up. And you know what? I'm 53 years old. And my mom still worries about me. If she has been calling for a day or two and I don't answer the phone, whenever I finally do answer, you know what she says? Where you been? <laughs> well, Mom, <laughs> you know, didn't know I had a curfew. <laughs> but in her mind, I do. Okay? She still worries about me. As a parent, you can't take a vacation from parenting. It is an ongoing process. You begin the day, you end the day. By reinforcing these principles of truth that I am sharing with you, you practice this. And then notice this, in a variety of ways, you take that word, you take that truth that I have given you, and you bind it up on your wrist, upon your hand, so that whenever you start to do something, whenever you start to work, whenever you start to behave, whenever you get active, there is the word of God bound on your hand reminding you that you have a duty and a responsibility to teach something by the way you act and the way you behave. By the way, parents, more is caught than what is taught. 
They will understand more by the way you behave than what you say. So bind it on your hand. And then not only that, but put it in a box and tie it around your head so that it sits right there between your eyes. Now, the Jews used to do this. They were called phylacteries. They would take leather, leather boxes, put, roll up uh, portions of Scripture, put it in, in there, and they would literally tie it on their, around their head. But that's not what God means here. What he is implying is simply this. Know the Word of God in your head, and not only that, but hold it in your heart. So with your hand, with your heart, with your head, and then finally notice what he says. Take it and post it on your doorpost. In your home. Now, I don't think that it's insignificant that God began this instruction concerning practice of the truth with the home inside. When you're in your home, you live godly. He, go, he goes through all of these practices of how to instill the truth in your child's heart and in your child's head. And then he, he begins at the home and he ends it in the home. So that every time you go in and out of your door, you will be reminded of the truth. It starts in the home and it ends at the home. This is the things that you've got to practice in order to be able to prepare your children to take the baton in full stride as they run as hard and fast as they can to the Lord. By the way, folks, that's the way in which I have instructed my children to find a mate. I have told them from the time they were just tiny little guys, here's what you do. And if there are any of you here that are about to approach that age, then let this ring out in your head. This is the way you find a mate, okay? The first thing you do, you don't ask, is she the one or is he the one? Mm-mm. You ask, am I the one? You start working on yourself first. And here's what you do first, is you set your face toward God. You, 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 you set your face as a flint toward the will of God. And then here's what you do. You take off running as hard and as fast as you can toward God. And then as you are running and as you approach maturity, as the years kind of roll up and you, you, start, you start thinking, man, I, you know, I need some, here's what you do. As you're running, you look over. And then you look over this way. And you see who's running with you. And then you say, hey. Because, do you know what? Any goofball can say, I'm a Christian. And that don't make it all right. You see who's running with you. You see who's keeping pace with you. You want to marry not just a Christian, but you want to marry somebody that's running toward God. Okay? Now that's how you find a mate. And, 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 and folks, you got to train them up this way. You got to put that in their, in their head and in their heart. And it don't start whenever they reach 15. Inside, outside, begin the day, end the day with your hand, with your head, with your heart, and in your home. This is what you do. All right? Now, unfortunately, a lot of Christian parents start right in on this practice. But I'm telling you that this isn't where it starts. You've got to understand the principles first.
And you say, what are those principles? I'm glad you ask. Here they are. Look at the principles that are involved. Go back up and, and pick it up at, at, at verse 3 and 4. Notice, notice what Moses says to the children of Israel. Hear, old Israel, the Lord our God, he's one Lord. He's one. Now, the very first principle that needs to be implemented in your own heart as a parent before you ever begin to try and instill these things in your child's heart, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to know God. For you see, in this word, hear there is something that is implied there. It's more than just activating the auditory nerve. It's more than just rattling the, the eardrum. What is implied here is this, that you grasp with your mind and you hold in your heart that our God is one Lord. Know Him. Now, in, in our world, we read this passage of Scripture and we kind of go, mm -hmm, I know that. And we pass right over it. But that was not the truth for the nation of Israel as they entered the land when God gave them this command. The land that they were about to enter into was absolutely surrounded with pagan heathen people. And there was a multiplicity of gods that, is, that existed among these people. They worshipped a God that controlled the weather. They worshipped a God that gave them victory in war. They worshipped a God that made sure that they were fertile and able to have children. There was a God for every facet of their life. And all of these gods demanded that they be appeased. Which, by the way, is a common trait among man-made gods. Only the God of Israel is the God who has come and died for us and has satisfied his own demands. Now, when Moses gave this truth to the nation of Israel, it implied two things. First of all, that the God that we serve is unique. He is unique in all of the world. There is none like him. One of the things that is significant and unique about the God of Israel is that all these other pagans, God, they demanded that people do things to win their favor in order that then they would come along and help them. But let me ask you this. How is it that you are acceptable with God if indeed you are acceptable with God? Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that we are acceptable with God in the Beloved. God himself has been propitiated. That means he has been satisfied he satisfied all of his own demands so that you and I are acceptable with him in the beloved. I don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops in order to be acceptable with God. I am in Christ and therefore I am acceptable with him. And this makes God unique in all of the world. For by grace are we saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is a of God, not of lest any man should boast. I forgot to tell you, this is interactive this morning. <laughs> Not only is God unique by being one, he is also sufficient. You don't need all of these other gods. He is able to meet every need that you have. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, 
He is sufficient. You don't need a God of war, a God of fertility, a God of the weather, a God of... You don't need all of that. All you need is God. We sing that little old song, He is my all in all. Is He really? Here's what I'm saying to you this morning, church, and that is this. That before you can begin to teach your children these truths and have them to memorize the the Bible and and verses of Scripture and and make sure that they're in Sunday school and make sure that they're attending the youth group and all of these kinds of things. Before you ever start doing that, here's what you need to do. You need to know God. And you need to know Him in His uniqueness. And you need to know Him in His sufficiency. Is He truly your all in all? Hear, old Israel... Grasp in your heart, grasp in your mind, hold in your heart that we serve a unique God who is able to meet all of our needs. Know that. In your walk with God, is that what you're experiencing? Because this is what your children and this is what this generation that is coming up behind you is looking for. This is what they want to see. This is what they need to see. It's not just somebody who takes me to church and sets me down and says, hush or I'll whip you. They need to see someone who knows God in his unique character and is experiencing that in their life and that they are, that they are finding God to be sufficient for all of their needs. That's what they need and that needs to be a reality in our lives before we ever begin to try to teach it to our children. It needs to be a reality in our lives. It needs to permeate every fiber of our soul, every nerve ending in our body, that God is unique and God is sufficient and He is all I need. Let this truth soak and sink down into the roots of your being. Hear, old Israel, the Lord our God, He is one Lord. You don't need anybody else because He is unique. And he is sufficient. And then notice this. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and all of your might. Now what what Moses is saying here is simply this. That you are to love God with your whole being. Did you know that Jesus has said that that we are to... uh, love God so deeply and so strongly and so intensely that when we would compare our love for him with even our love for our parents, that our love for our parents is to pale in comparison into what would appear to a casual onlooker as something akin to hate. This is echoed. Love him with your whole being, everything that's in you. Love God first. Now, How in the world are we to do that? When there are so many other things in this world that is vying for my affections. And you know what the problem is? These other things and these other people that are vying for my affections, those are tangible. I can get a hold of them. I can feel them. I can smell them. I can taste them. I can touch them. I can examine them. And not only that, but they can express that back to me. And so it's a tangible, you know, there is this real thing that I can get a hold of. And yet, here is God, invisible. And honestly, folks, this might come as a disappointment to some of you, but I have never heard him speak audibly. I can tell that didn't disappoint some of you. I hear God through his word. 
I, I understand who he is through his word. But, dear ones, let me just say this to you. While I do indeed love this, this book, I love this Bible, because I believe that it is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God. What I hold in my hands is the living word of God. And I believe that with all of my heart. But do you know why? Do you know why this book was written? Do you know why God has preserved this book and kept it for us that this generation may have it in a form that they can read it, study it, and understand it? Do you know why God gave us this book? God gave us this book so that we might know Him and that we might love the God of this Bible and that we might have a relationship with Him, that there might be an exchange of life that takes place between me and Him. John 15 encourages us to be in a relationship with Him that mimics that of the vine and the branch. I am the vine. You are the branch. You have no roots that is able to suck up and draw nourishment and substance from the ground. But I do. I am the vine. You are the branch. Now let me ask you this, church. Is that truly what we're experiencing in our life? That vine-branch relationship? Is there that personal one-on-one, face-to-face exchange that takes place between me and God on a regular basis. Do I know God and am I loving Him? Now, I have a difficult time in, 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 in expressing and experiencing a love for God because He's intangible, He's invisible. How do I do that? You know, one of the, one of the most marvelous and wonderful things that I enjoy about God is that he understands that I am but dust. And he has taken steps to help me love him. He, he, folks, he knows that on my own I can't love him. And I won't love him. But you know what he's done? He's loved me. What does 1 John 4.19 say? We love him because... Now remember this is interactive. We love him because he... He initiates it. And lets me then respond. And he's not offended by that. Isn't that neat? He helps me love him. And then not only that, but the depth of your forgiveness. If you're having a difficult time like I am in loving God, understand how deeply he has loved you. And not only that, but how deeply he has forgiven you. One day Jesus went to a Pharisee's house and he had dinner. And while he was there, a lady came in and broke open a very expensive uh, uh, box of perfume and, and anointed him. And, and she was castigated because that could have been given to the, to the, to the poor. And, and, and Jesus then told a story about all this. He said, you know, this woman, and, and, the, and the objection was, if he only knew who this woman was, he wouldn't let her touch him. But she was demonstrating a great love for Jesus. And so the story that Jesus told then to this Pharisee was this. He said, if, if a man, had, if, 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 if man was, had two debtors, okay, and, and the creditor frankly forgave them both, and one owed a great deal and one owed just a little bit, which one would love the most? And which one would love the most? The one who was forgiven of most. And he says, that's the reason this woman is, is showing this depth of love for me is because she understands the depth of her forgiveness. Now, why couldn't, I believe his name was Simon, why couldn't he love Christ? In that way, because he did not see the depth of forgiveness that he needed. Now let me ask you this. How much has God forgiven you of? 
How much has God forgiven you? We won't love Him and we can't love Him to the depth that we should until we understand these two things. His depth of love for me and the depth of forgiveness that He offers to me. For by grace are you saved through faith and that and not of yourselves. It, it, it is a gift of God, not of yourselves. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And then, finally, we're told, Moses said, hold these truths in your heart. And if you notice, that, that, that implies this. It is from the inside out that we are to hold God's word. It starts on the inside and it transforms us rather than just conforming us. There are far too many Christian parents who are satisfied just because their children know the rules and are keeping the rules and they're not being an embarrassment to them. And we think that if we can get them through college and they don't embarrass me, they don't end up in jail. Whew, hallelujah, he's making money on his own. I've raised a good kid. No, no. One day my son came through the church and I, you know, I said something to him. One of, one, of, one of our leaders heard me. And he came to the church, and here's what I said to him. Pull your britches up. <laughs> okay? Just being a dad, pull your britches up. And this leader said to me, he said, Ken, you ain't never going to let that boy off your hook, are you? I said, oh, yes, I am. When I see my grandkids serving the Lord, then he's off the hook. But not until then. Transformation, not just confirmation. And here's the reason why, folks. Show and tell. Our children and the generation that is coming up behind us, not only do they need to hear the truth, but they desperately need to see the truth. You see, I think I'm kind of learning handicapped to some degree or the other because I can't read instructions and put things together. You guys ever, ever buy this stuff that's got to be assembled and there comes an instruction booklet with it? You know, I get those kinds of things. And, you know, my wife goes to laughing. But I get those things and I spread it all out on the floor. And you know what? For me, tab A never does fit into slot B. It never does match up. But you know what? If I've got an expert, if I've got somebody there who will just show me how to take tab A and put it into slot B, man, I can learn. I can learn that way. And I don't believe that I'm the only one like that. I believe that God designed us that way so that we could both be shown and be told, but we cannot separate the two. Those that are coming behind us, they need to see the truth being worked out in us, and they need to hear it, but they need to see it before they hear it. Let's pray together. Father, I ask you to help me to be able to apply these truths in my own life. Lord, I ask that you might take this time, seal it to our heart, seal these truths, Lord, to our heart, and find us to be a people who are both showing and telling the truth to the generations that are coming behind us in order that there might be a seamless pass of the baton. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.